So what's the name of our denomination? Who knows that? Out loud. Anybody? What are we called? Methodist, United Methodist. Do you know that when Methodist was first came, when it was first brought to mind, that they were making fun of John Wesley with it? They're saying, oh, he just has this method, and if you just do his method, he'll be good. They called him the Methodist. It was a slur. It was a slur. Did you know that? How about Protestant? Methodists are Protestant, like like the like the uh, rest of the non-Roman Catholic world um, in the West. And Protestant was a slur. We were protesting. They were protesters. Those protesters, they're Protestants. You want another one? Christian. Christian was a slur when it first came out. Though they're, they're on their way to a cross, just like their master, those little Christ, they're Christians. There's more, there's more. The Baptist was originally, you, you may not know this, you know, they don't believe in infant baptism. They make you be rebaptized. They're the Baptists. And so the Christian world, in a lot of ways, the people of God just sort of take on the meaning of these slurs. Sometimes it's not even worth the effort of, of fighting too much. You know, the Puritans sort of gave up what they were originally called and were called the Puritans. That was a slur. They just can't accept anything but purity. They're the Puritans. The Quakers haven't quite given up their own identity yet. Do you know what the Quakers' churches really are called? Friends' churches. That's what their, their original name was, Friends, but we call them Quakers because they tremble at the word of God. It's a slur. There's one more. There's an older, older one that sort of sets the stage for everyone. Now, there's some debate about it, but most of us don't speak Ugaritic, so we don't speak the language it came from. Um, Habiru, Hebrew. Hebrews, Habiru, is taken to mean this in the ancient world, non-sophisticated culturally or politically, rubes, drifters, despised, escapees from Assyria or Egypt. You know, Abraham left Assyria. Moses brought the people out of Egypt. So when the Hebrews or the Habirus came into the promised land, do you know what the Philistines sent messages home saying, help with these Habirus, these drifters, these no accounts, these politically backward people? The people of God always seem to stand out, be made fun of, to live in enemy territory. I'll just talk to you about that. Have you ever felt like you were living in enemy territory when you proclaim, when you live for Christ, you just did this and somebody made fun of you or they set you aside and said, well, you don't have to pay any attention to them anymore. Has that ever happened to you? I see some, I see some of those nodding faces. Our story today is a little bit like that. I, I call it living in Ziklag. Ziklag is a town that was at the time controlled by the Philistines in enemy territory, if you were King David. That was enemy territory. It's 
David sticking out like a sore thumb. I have a sore thumb today. That's my sermon illustration. I, uh, it took me almost 15 minutes to catch my breath after hitting my thumb with the mallet. <laughs> I thought briefly about leaving the glove on, but then I looked down and it was all red on that side, and I thought maybe I had to take that off and go wash it. It's super fun. But you stick out like a sore thumb sometimes as a believer. David did as well. Does anybody know? It, we were talking about David before I took a break during Lent. Why was David on the run? Does anybody know? Does anybody remember why David was on the run from King Saul? Saul tried to kill him. Saul was trying to kill him. Saul was jealous. What was the beginning of the jealousy? Do, 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 you, do you remember that little piece of trivia? Why did Saul get jealous right off? That song they sang, David kills Goliath of Gath, and they come in in the parade. Saul is king, and they say, Saul has killed his thousands, and David is ten thousands. And Saul gets jealous. And so now he's on the run. And so here he is. This is 1 Samuel 27. David kept thinking to himself, someday Saul is going to get me. Now, at this point, he's been on the run for almost a decade, living in the wilderness. Someday Saul's going to get me. The best thing I can do is escape to the Philistines, and then Saul will stop hunting for me in Israelite territory, and I will finally be safe. What is it that goes through your mind that think I can run to enemy territory and that would be safer than being in a church or something like that? You're the people of God. David was a person of God. The kingdom of God at that time was Saul's to rule and he was being chased. But remember, he's killed Goliath of Gath the Philistine. And there's this song about David killing his 10,000s. But this is how bad it's gotten for him. I'll be safe if I go live in the enemy land. So David took his 600 men and went over and joined Achish, son of Malch, the king of Gath. That's the king of Gath where Goliath is from. Just sort of letting you sit there for a second. David did what with Goliath? David uh, threw a big rock through with a sling and hit him in the head and killed him and then took his sword and cut off his head, which was buried, traditionally they say, at Golgotha, the hill of the skull. That's why it's called that, the hill of the skull, because he was the troubler of Israel. It's another, just, just adding layers upon layers of this story for you. David and his men and their families settled there with Achish of Gath, and David went, brought his two wives along with Ahinoam and Jezreel and Abigail and Nabal's widow from Carmel. Word soon reached Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he stopped hunting for him. One day David said to Achish, If it's all right with you, we would rather live in one of the country towns instead of here in the royal city. Now, you can imagine if you're David living in the royal city and you've killed their one-time hero, that maybe living there, that there might be some sidelong glances at you every time you went someplace. 
And I know you've never experienced this as you walk into the room and people go, David. And that's what you hear, the whispers. So Achish gave him the town of Ziklag, which is all, still belongs to the kings of Judah to this day. And they lived there among the Philistines for a year and four months. David and his men spent their time raiding the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites, people who had lived near Shur toward the land of Egypt since ancient times. David did not leave one person alive in the villages he attacked. I want you to think about this for a second when you hear this. Why was Saul removed? Why was the Spirit of God or the anointing removed from Saul by Samuel and David anointed? Because Saul wouldn't do this. Saul was told to wipe out these people and he wouldn't do it. Now, you might think in our modern day and age that wiping people out, that genocide is evil, and we've been taught that, and I agree with that. I'm, I'm all on board. I know this, though, that if you live in a land and pretty soon you start to intermarry, the traditions of the other person's family become your traditions. Is that not right? Who's married in the room? Anybody married in the room? Do you do things from both sides of the family? The traditions of the family marry with you. (laughs) So if you're one of these, let me say their names again because this is just fun, the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites, what is one of the traditions that God found just repugnant amongst them? Do you know? Child sacrifice. And if you start to intermarry with people that have child sacrifice as a family tradition, it might work its way into your family. And if you know, you've heard me say this before, if you read First and Second Chronicles, and they'll have this king, and they'll say, this king did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he caused his children to pass through the fire. That's what that is, child sacrifice. It has worked its way back in. God is trying to solve a problem beforehand. However, it's not ours to judge at this point. We just know that. And he took the sheep and goats and cattle and donkeys and camels and clothing before returning home to see King Achish. And and Achish would ask, where did you raid today? And David would reply, south of Judah and the Jehermelites and the Kenites. No one was left alive to come to Gath to tell where he had really been. This happened again and again. And while he was living among the Philistines, Achish believed David and thought to himself, by now the people of Israel must hate him bitterly. Now he will have to stay here and serve me forever. I'm skipping chapter 28 because we'll cover that next week. 29, the entire Philistine army now mobilized at Aphak and the Israelites were camped at Jezreel. That's just across the valley. And the Philistine rulers were leading out their troops in groups of hundreds and thousands. And David's men marched at the rear with King Achish. But the Philistine commanders demanded, what are these Hebrews doing here? These worthless drifters. The enemy. Why is the enemy amongst us? And Achish told him, this is David, the servant of the king Saul of Israel. He's been with me for years, and I've never found a single fault in him from the day he arrived until today. But the Philistine commanders were angry. Send him back to the town you've given him, they demanded. He can't go into battle with us. What if he turns against us 
in battle and becomes our adversary? Is there any better way for him to reconcile himself with his master than by handing our heads over to him? Isn't this the same David about whom the women of Israel sang in their dances? Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Okay, so when we read this text and you're wondering how do, how do you read this text and take it seriously and all this and figure out what's going on in David? I mean, first he's a genocide guy and he's rejected and he's doing all this stuff. How do you read this text? Well, let me tell you, there's two ways that a lot of people read it. I think I'm going to give you a third way to read it afterwards. But the first way that people often handle texts like this is they moralize the approach. They say... They criticize and condemn David for backsliding into tree. And, you know, he's acting like a bad guy. He must be a bad guy. I would never do that if I was in his situation. Have you ever heard that reproach? This David, this is just an example of backsliding. There's, maybe you haven't heard it about David. Maybe you've heard it about the judge who, when winning, Winning the battle says, Lord, if you, win the ba- if you win the battle today, I'll sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house, knowing, as we do today, that, that their houses were also where they stored their animals on the main floor, and then upstairs they lived above, and his daughter comes out. If I were doing that, I would never have done that. Maybe it's not just Bible text. You see somebody living around you and, you and and you see them and you moralize this thing in your life and you go, if I were them, I wouldn't have done that. Maybe you've heard that said about yourself. If, if they were me, they wouldn't have done it my way. See, the problem with moralization like that is it removes all mercy from the equation and it presumes that the person doing the judgment knows enough to know the full story. Do you know the full story of your own life? Every so often you hear something from some other side and you go, oh, I didn't realize I did that. You don't even know your own story. So the moralizing story, but it also marginalizes God. And without mercy, that's also a marginalization of God because what does God do in our lives? He brings mercy. What's the other aspect of this? We secularize the reading. Isn't David really wise for just doing it the Philistine way? Look, he's living amongst them. Man, he's wise. He's getting rich. He's doing his thing. Have you ever heard that? We should just do that. Maybe, maybe we should just live for Christ and Jesus on Sunday and we'll just live the world's way the other six days. The secularization of the reading. And this is, but look, we need to be good readers. We, we're not trying to accommodate spirituality or accommodate our spirituality to what the world says is right. That puts the world in charge of what we believe. And, and as far as I can tell, I'm, I'm, I'm remembering a prayer request. As far as I can tell, the world doesn't believe anything really of value, does it? In John 17, Jesus doesn't even say, I don't pray for the world. Why does Jesus not pray for the world in John 17? Because the world in John 17 is, the, is everybody not, that doesn't believe in God 
organizing itself to work against God and his aims in the world. And the only hope for the world then is for it to stop being the world and start being part of the kingdom of God. And you don't, aim, you don't pray for your enemy to remain your enemy. You pray for your enemy to be converted. So what do we do with this? Because I know that both of these things get not just treated on the texts, they also get treated with people. This is what one commentary says about this. I know scores of men and women who are living under the patronage of Achish. In other words, they have to live under a system like the Philistine system, which is you raid and you kill and you do all this stuff. Many of them feel terrible about it. Many of them feel guilty, but quite honestly don't know what else they can do. They have jobs with companies that do business in defiant contempt of the kingdom of God. They're married to spouses who hate the name of Jesus. They seem to be inextricably tangled with an economic system that exploits the poor and ignores the oppressed. Any of you live in that spot? They're doing their best to honor their parents who dishonor God in thought, word, and deed. There's hardly a Christian I know who hasn't put in time, sometimes far more than David's 16 months under Achish of Gath. What does it mean to live in Ziklag? Well, Ziklag is a town in the middle, the backwoods, the rubes. He gives you this town back here so he doesn't really, you can be a part, but you're still living under the rule. That's the church in the world. It is. That's how we live. We live every day sticking out like a sore thumb. You can't deny it. Nobody in the Philistines ever trusted David except for Achish because he kept thinking he was doing it right. Saul didn't trust David because he thought he was trying to take over his kingdom. David was just trying to live honestly before God. And did he do things wrong? Yep. But here's the back half of this quote. Are you ready? What I want to say is this. This is from this commentary. God is perfectly capable of working out his purposes in our lives even when we can't lift a finger to help. Have you ever felt like you were in a world and it's all against you and nothing you do seems to matter at all? Nothing matters, nothing you can do, and there's no way forward. You just can't see it. You're tilting at windmills, to use a Don Quixote phrase. You, you've, you've, got your, you've got your lance, but you're running into buildings, and it just doesn't work because they only work on smaller targets. God is faithfully working out our salvation even when every time we lift a finger, it seems to contribute to the wrong side. Can you hear the... the the work of God, the sovereignty of God in our lives? Have you ever felt like every time you went to help God, you hit your own thumb with the hammer? I have. Not just yesterday, but lots of times. How do we know how to live? How do we know how to be at peace with God even when we live in Ziklag? We had a long discussion about living at peace with God or, or what about if it wasn't just I was at peace with him, but I was, 
I was comfortable and assured in his presence. Those of you who are in the Wednesday night Bible study, we've been working on 1 John 3, and this is what we did. This is the steps, if you want to know them, for how we came about understanding how... I took a picture of the board. You can still see the board. It's still back there. Maybe it's not. I'm not sure. How is it that we could have confidence in the presence of God? Do you have confidence in God's presence in your life? Do you? Let's say, let's, without raising your hands, if you don't, would you like to know how? Yes or no? Would the group like to know how we can make sure, to, how to share this in a way that's sort of simple? This is what we came up in class. Are you ready? If you want to have confidence in God's presence, there's four things that have to happen, and three of them God does. The first one is your job. Stop hiding. Stop hiding the stuff you've done. God's already aware of it. He's already covered it. Jesus died on the cross as a sacrifice to cover it. And the only person you're kidding is you. And we call that self-delusion, don't we? When you keep telling yourself a story that's not true, but you believe it. That's delusion. So you stop hiding. What does that mean? It means come out in front of God and say, I did that wrong. Can you forgive it? He already knows it. It's not like you're bringing new information to the table to God. He has full disclosure. When he judges, he knows the whole story. He knows every little thing contributing to how you did it, why you did it, what else was going on, what are the three steps before that. It's like like we're playing checkers, but he's playing chess. So the first thing is you come out of hiding. To stay in hiding means I did this thing and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mull over it. I'm going to keep it over here. Nobody's ever going to know about it. Well, nobody but God. The second piece of this is receive the forgiveness. It's like a birthday present. When you're given a birthday present, they give it to you and you open it up and inside it is forgiveness. But when you get a birthday present, it's not often that you get a birthday present that after opening, you go, wow, it's exactly what I want. And they go, that's too bad. You can't have it. They've given you a present. That's what the cross does. It gives you the forgiveness. Now, the next gift that comes after the forgiveness and after you start to go, Man, I think this God, he really, believe, he, he really means it. He really does forgive me. You know what he does at that moment in your heart? He sets your heart to peace. Have you ever had your heart set to peace? It's pretty fabulous. My, my struggle with it is I have to do something else, and then I have to seek forgiveness again. I have to keep doing this. And so I struggle to stay there. But God sets my heart to peace with forgiveness. And that setting of my heart to peace means confidence in the presence of God. So that's the third way I want you to do this. When you read this story, when, you read, when we sang this song today, I want you to be good readers of the text. I really want you to read it and not always know all the answers and be okay with struggling with it and just letting it sit there and go, wow, David was a bad dude, but God really did use him. 
But to become good readers, you have to do some things in your head. When we read the field, the trees of the field, they clapped their hands. How many of you thought that the trees actually had hands? <laughs> you didn't, did you? No, because you're good readers. You know it was poetic license. It was poetic license. When you become a good reader of the text and Jesus feeds the 5,000 and, and you run into the secularization of that text, and what do I mean by the secularization of the Jesus feeding the 5,000? I mean, if you've never heard this, you can go read it. There's a set of commentaries in our library that even has it this way, that this, that guy says this in other places. Everybody that was out in the desert really had their lunches already, and Jesus just talked them into sharing it. He, he guilt-tripped them into sharing their lunches. Now, that's a plausible thing. That is completely plausible, except when you read the text, he crosses the lake, they follow him around the lake to make him king. I want you to be good readers. The text actually protects you a little bit from that. They make him king. That's the, the king I want, the one that makes me feel guilty. No, he fed 5,000 and they go, wow, a new Moses king. Not because he, he caused them to share lunches. Be good readers of the text. Let it sit there and read the context and let it, and, and you're not going to have all the answers. You're just not. Me either. We talked about this a little last week. Having an encyclopedia for a son it has taught me that there's going to be more things that I don't understand going on in the world than I knew that I didn't understand. I don't even know what I don't know sometimes when Alex is talking. But there's stuff that I can do that he doesn't know. And there, everybody in this room has a different place of knowledge in their life. And you've just got to get used to not understanding everything that comes your way. How many of you understand astrophysics? Me either. I'm just getting used to not understanding it. It's okay. I think it's really cool. Anyway, here we are. This is the one takeaway I want you to understand more than anything else from the text. The primary work of our salvation is God's job. And the accepting, the coming out into the light and going, I, I kind of need that. I'm going to stop hiding myself. It's going to make you sort of a sore thumb. You're going to stand out in the world. There's going to be no hiding. David could not hide that he was God's chosen person. And the world already knows you are, you're different than them. So go ahead and rest in that and be it. You do live in Ziklag. We just call it the world. Or the nun zone. Do you know what the nun zone is in the Pacific Northwest? It means that when asked, the, the majority of people, when asked what their spiritual beliefs were, they said none. We live in the nun zone. We live in Ziklag. And we're supposed to stand out even when we don't really want to. Lord Jesus, I thank you for today. I thank you that we can have church service even when little pieces of technology don't work right. I thank you that you do the primary work of our salvation. 
that you make a way for us. Even when we're not perfect. Thank you, Lord. Amen.